Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Hi, this is David Perodin, your host of the Safety Doc Podcast, welcoming you to another wonderful episode of The Safety Doc. I want to, first of all, thank our sponsors, the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, John Grant and the 405 Media, Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com out of Santa Barbara, California, serving over half of the country with school bullying and school threat reporting online software. Also, ISS 24-7 providing instant management for a number of National Football League stadiums, NCAA arenas, and other large venues across the United States and beyond ISS 24-7. A quick shout out to Quadcast Courtney Podcast at Quadfather MFT. Quadfather MFT, I will have that in the narrative. And also Marianne West. Uh, and the, the Sustainable Living Podcast, sustainablelivingpodcast.com for their incredible support of the show and just the outstanding content uh, that those podcasters put out. Um, there's a reason they have a massive following. It's because of the tremendous value of content that they release at no cost to all of us. So just a benefit for uh, Dr. Courtney, and then also for Marianne West. Uh, today, I want to introduce to you Dr. Sean Dickers, who is the Department Chair, Associate Professor of Education, um, College or Arts of, of Arts and Sciences at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. So I think it's time for the safety doc to get a new printer. Uh, Sean Dickers formerly served 14 years as a middle school history teacher, high school principal, and education consultant. He, his work focuses on the integration of new media technologies for formal and informal educational settings. His books, Real-Time Research, Mobile Media Learning, and Teacher Craft, How Teachers Use Minecraft in the Classroom, all with ETC Press, are helping educational innovators to integrate technology into classroom learning. His projects include CivWorld, the Comprehensive Assessment for Leadership and Learning, Call, Augmented Reality, and Mobile Game Design, and co-directed the development of Playful Learning out of Ohio. His current partnerships focus on the development of, is it uh, Camino Learning, Dr. Bicker, or Dr. Dr. Uh, Dickers? Yeah, it's Camino Learning. Camino Learning. And, and research on uh, uh, induction support for new teachers, which is something that is is very interesting right now because schools want to adopt policies and procedures on gaming and introducing you know games, but but it's very tricky because we think of games sometimes as as the shoot 'em up games, as the kids putting on the headsets and and playing you know um, the the Call of Duty type games with with people not. A, just in their neighborhood, but across the country, across the world, which can become very violent. Um, I actually, you know, participated in that with a student one just just to see what it was like, and and it was intimidating. Of course, I was I was the first person eliminated, but um, but what but what Dr. Dickers is going to uh, share with us today is his his deep passion, his deep research into uh, developing collaborative games. And then multiplayer games. And one point that we'll get into later on is uh, the nature of the games to be self-regulating. Meaning, um, you know, we think that these games are completely out of control landscapes that, that children enter at their own risk. And, and that's not exactly accurate. Um, so the way that that gets portrayed in the media, Mr. Dickers is going to give us another perspective. And before we start, um, uh, so, so Dr. Dickers, I found out that 1977 was the first release of the Oregon Trail. 
I thought it was I, I thought it was after that, but uh, you don't know how many times I've died of dysentery in that game. So uh, it's uh, <laughs> you know yeah. tough times here for uh, for the safety safety doc when it comes to Oregon Trail. But tell me about yourself. Well, you've had a lot of bad experiences in games. You've been shot. <laughs> You've died at Oregon Trail in multiple ways, so that's a pretty good introduction to, to some of those game spaces, and uh, that's good. So, you know, you, you talked about myself, and, and I don't think I've heard it described better. That was an absolute delight and a very generous introduction about the work that I do. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say it's all the work that I do, because some of the topics we're going to cover here tonight... Um, Really, I'm sharing the work of a whole community of, of researchers and scholars across the planet that are taking greater and greater interest in these video games, which have been just kind of entertainment for years. But what we're starting to see, especially as we connect people through through landlines and, and you know high-speed internet, that game communities are forming that have teaching and learning going on. And these are the kind of spaces that kids go to voluntarily and actually spend money to spend time in. And, and there's some pretty powerful learning that has to happen. So when you played that shoot 'em up with your, your, is it your friend or a nephew or something, um, you know, you died first because you had no experience. You were the novice and your success level was really low. So to play a great number of these games, you actually have to go through a pretty rigorous learning process to even be competitive or valuable in those spaces. So at the same time, you'd think that would make people run away from video games, but millions of people are running into video games. And some of the fastest growing demographics are ones that might surprise you, like the elderly. Really? And, uh, so, and, and, and really, the stereotypical gamer, though we do see lots of 20-year-old males playing video games, is it's washing out a little bit demographically and we're starting to see with especially the newer generation that depending on what kinds of games you play there might be differences with demographics but the fact that people are playing video games or digital games or simulations from farmville to candy crush to call of duty um is really getting to be almost ubiquitous people play video games it's a form of media that's just become part of our society so Part of my work and the work of many other researchers and scholars and, and people I look up to because of the, the work they've done for years is looking at digital gaming as a form of media. In the same way that you have film studies, literature studies, um, you'd have people that, that, that have music departments at universities. The idea that there would be a video game studies department at a university is a growing kind of phenomenon. And if you look at HEGVA, uh, HEVGA, the Higher Ed Video Game Alliance, um, they're really trying to unite a lot of these kind of programs in these research areas where we're looking at digital game design, digital game employment areas or ways you can get involved in that field because it's a growing employment base. And then there's a segment of those programs that are looking at them in terms of teaching and learning. So what do we have to learn from video games that can help us in our classrooms? What do we have to learn from the design of video games or even the process of making them that can help us with the process of making a course and designing a meaningful experience that's engaging throughout? Um, and then, you know, old school people like me, like, how can I use these games in my classroom to make my classroom more engaging? Or even better, like, how can I start to have activities in my classroom that use that language that students are familiar with? So all of those things are kind of areas of study in the field. I hope that gives you at least a context for where I'm, at least the perspective I have when I look at a digital video game. It, it does. So, so uh, Sean, you know, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember the old Intellivision video game, and it was Christmas, and it was about thirty years ago, and and we unwrapped it underneath the tree, and my brother and I stayed up all night playing yeah. in television basketball until the sun came up. And I think back then the, the controllers made your hands bleed because they, they, they just weren't, <laughs> I was like, Oh my goodness, how many sharp edges can you put on this thing? But, uh, but yeah, we just loved it. It was so, so addicting. Um, but what, what I find in my role in working with school safety is um, 
immediately following a school safety event, whether it be a threat or something that's more sentinel, such as an intruder event or a school shooting, um, the question comes up of, well, this was a student playing video games, one, violent video games, and then the second part is, well, if they were, then that certainly contributed to the behavior that they manifested to bring them upon this mass destruction. I I don't subscribe to that because I've researched um, uh, Lawrence Cutner's book, it, and maybe I'm not pronouncing his last name correctly. Yeah, but Cutner, and I think Olson wrote. Right. Is a co-author on that book too. Yeah. Of uh, of Grand Theft Childhood, more of a meta analysis, but looking at video games and, and and just kind of saying, you know, video games, um, violent video games were were not relational to carrying out than violent behavior. And, and actually being from Wisconsin, you know, it's one of those things of uh, how many of my classmates would go deer hunting and had rifles and, and would, would take out, you know, deer or or then during small game season and, and just, and, and does, did that equate then to that person becoming more prone to use a weapon against other people? No, it didn't. So I, I thought that book was very well done, but then but then things kind of went silent after that and, and it still it still comes up and also, um, you know, Dr. Dickers, I, I, I think an issue um, that, that I, I need to address frequently when I work with schools is the fact that, um, you know, they, they tend to stereotype kids that play, play video games, especially if it's, and I'm going to say a Call of Duty game. This is nothing to to single out Call of Duty, it's just a game that I'm I'm familiar with that I've that I've seen kids play, but I don't see kids walking away with that away from the game. For example, thinking, um, you know, I'm going to then you know do something against my school or do something against these other kids. Right. Um, but but parents are, get brought into this, and then what it does is 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 it kind of um, you know puts a dark cloud over all gaming. And I know a lot of the work that you did in in your early years at UW Madison and and have you know so have expanded out since then is collaborative game design of multiplayer game design where hey it's not kids going after kids and threatening kids in this chaotic wild environment it can be super creative fun educational um and, and I think of it as kind of back when I was 10 years old we would go up to the sandlot, which was a block away from my house, and you'd have some of the older kids and younger kids, and you kind of divide up, and, and you governed yourself. So if somebody was, uh, you know, a little bit wild during an in inning or or kicking up some dirt, they didn't agree with the play. Well, then they got to sit on the the bleachers for the next inning until the older kids said, "Okay, you can come back in and play now." Um, and and the fact that when we lump things in of saying, you know, these multiplayer games are bad, in which I've heard, because I think people are fearful, they're not educated to really that this is the future. This is kids love learning through not only kids, kids, adults. I don't know about grandparents. I'll have to check with my grand, with my mom and dad. My dad would be the one to do it. I don't think my mom would, but, uh, you know. <laughs> look at, look at uh, Bob DeShutter's work. Okay. You know, he's using video games in uh, senior care homes uh, to, to you know, to refresh memory, to um, work on hand-eye coordination and actually build social groups. So it gets them to come out of their rooms to come down to the social center uh, when they're doing things like we, we act, you know, they're playing we bowling together. So it, it's interesting the ways in which you bring people together around entertainment activities and, and the value that those kinds of things can have. So, yeah, you remind me of those days when we'd get together in fourth grade at recess and we'd play football. And, you know, of course, fourth grader and the rules for football in fourth grade can change dramatically from what they are in the NFL. <laughs> A lot of those changes that we made were, were made because of things that would happen that we didn't like as a group. So we would make rules around how we were going to pick teams. And we would make rules about if you have somebody that hits below the belt or above the neck, you know, and what are we going to do? And, and we, and, you know, and we had our own kind of systems in place 
anytime you bring people together around a common activity and you have individuals that are doing things that take away from the fun, I think that's why we build clubs and why, you know, an informal get together becomes a tradition is because those norms start to get put into place where people keep coming back and they have fun. If that's not happening, eventually things become desert wastelands and because nobody keeps showing up because it's not fun anymore. So people have usually figured that out out in elementary school recess, you know, and I, and, but it's the same sorts of things happen in digital spaces too. When you have groups of people that gather together to do fun things and you have individuals that ruin the fun, the natural human response is to create some rules around that. Even if the game itself doesn't have those rules, people will do that. And to me, that's, you know, it's, it's, renews my faith in humanity that there are going to be those systems that arise in any sort of social group. Um, on the other hand, you still have aberrant behavior, which kind of makes you wonder about the nature of humanity and that sort of thing. So you still have those kinds of people. So um, I'm sorry, I just cut in with that. I didn't know if you... If, no, no, I... I forget if there was a question at the end. Or you were... You were um, and this was maybe you know, five years ago, I believe you were working with a school in Chicago or Northern Illinois on, on introducing some gaming um, that was of collaborative nature and, and you were sharing out the results from that. It, am I ringing a bell on, on that study at all? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've spent, I've spent some time especially working with Minecraft in schools and which has grown significantly even well beyond my initial preliminary work. Um, Microsoft bought Minecraft for a staggering um, amount of money, and they're looking to have this be a standard tool in, in schools. And there are some countries that have already adopted Minecraft as every student gets a Minecraft account. Wow. Um, which it seems kind of shocking at one level. Like, really, we want to send our kids to a school so they can play video games? Um, and, and part of the, I think what's, what helps me at least is to think about is that there are, in the same way that you go into a movie theater or you visit a video store, those are getting dated now too. And there's categories and you go into a library and there's different sections. The same thing is true. We have hundreds of thousands of computer games that are on the market right now and there's different categories and sections. So you have to kind of know what the game is and what it contains, especially as a parent. Um, when my kid says I'm playing uh, Divinity Original Sin, that title could make me wonder what the world my kid is playing. Right. Um, but when you look at the game, and there's some great resources for that, by the way. I don't know if you highlight Common Sense Media or Plugged In, but these are websites that you can go to, and every movie, every computer game has been played or reviewed by someone like me. I used to do work for Common Sense Media. And you can, get, as a parent, in a quick five-minute read, get a sense of what content that game has. Um, in the same way that I wouldn't let my five-year-old rent any movie in the video store, it doesn't make movies necessarily bad or good, but as a parent, there's movies I want my kid to be watching at a certain age, and there's other movies that can wait till they're a grown-up. Right. Um, and computer games are the same way, right? And, and, and by the way, just not to pick on Divinity Original Sin, the entire game is about ethical decision-making. Wow. Do I help this person or don't I? And whatever decision you make has some impact on the overall storyline. The game designers wanted a game that you'd want to replay as soon as you finish just to see those other pathways. And that's common in role-playing games and adventure games. Trine does that. Fable does that. Just these games where the whole game is about making choices. Um, those are actually, so as shocking as the title is, that's a good sales title. And this is entertainment media. That's actually the game I want to play side-by-side -side with my middle school kid. Um, let's do this together and make these decisions together. Um, and what does that look like? And because it creates great conversation, it's kind of sometimes hard for parents to make with their early adolescent kids. Um, and those conversations are exactly the kind of things that make it so that you don't have video games being part of a violent disposition and that sort of thing, right? It's the social relationships you have around activities. So, you know, you mentioned some of the safety training we do in schools and that connection that that's had and, and even the silence since Cutner's book. The reason there's academically been a lot of silence around safety in video games is because Grand Theft Childhood is a book that kind of puts the issue to bed. And 
it's not that there's a silence there. It's that as researchers, we know that those connections are hard to document. And we're really interested in some of the more positive elements of video games and what they have to offer, because they do have some things to offer. Um, the other point is, if you look at 2011, that was kind of a big date for video games. Uh, according to the Pew Internet and American Family Life research that's in the polling that they're always doing, we kind of hit a magic number there where 97% of kids in America play some sort of digital interactive simulation. Wow video games at least once a week. So if you take 97% of the population and there's this kid that does something really aberrant, it's hard to blame video games anymore. If it were video games causing these dispositions, you'd expect a massive rise in violence. And the opposite has happened. We've actually seen a great decrease in violence with the rise of video games. So People that have, and, and, and you've done some reading on this, and you've looked into it, and you've looked at this book, when you see the research on some of these things, it's not that interesting of a question anymore to ask a question where we've kind of answered it. The questions today are more, what are some of the socially redeeming elements of games, and how can we use them to do some really interesting things with teaching and learning? Um, the other piece of that is that most kids know the difference between reality and fantasy. So if I'm going to shoot 10,000 goblins, actually, there's a game called Orcs Must Die. Okay. Uh, the entire game is you killing armies of orcs coming at you by setting up a deadly architecture that they'll have to go through. So it's kind of a Lemmings-style environment where you're just trying to stop them from getting to your treasure trove or whatever. Sure. But most people recognize they're not real. They're not, they're not authentic, and you don't run out and do the things you do in your video games in real life. And we call that psychosocial moratorium. In the same way when we read a book, we don't actually go necessarily do what the characters do. But throughout history, we've had people that mentally or cognitively can't disassociate. And, and they have always found media that they've engaged with. So it, it, it's hard to blame you know, some of the, the historic villains that we've had and shooters and, and people that have, have, have done horrendous things usually have some media or entertainment that inspired them in some way. The problem is psychologists, especially abnormal psychologists, realize what's happening there is a, 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 a disability to, to recognize reality and fantasy at any level. Um, and it's sad, but it happens, in, in, and we have those individuals that will pop up. So I don't know if that's helpful to the conversation. No, it, it's very helpful. And actually, um, you know, Hamlet, for example, Shakespeare's Hamlet, uh, somebody could read that and take that in a very literal manner um, and have some, you know, psychosocial, uh, you know, perception of, you know, the 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 razor's edge of life and, and, and death, and, and then take that as, as a manifesto to go out and, and to, you know, do some kind of, uh, you know, mass harm on to others. So, uh, well, and Shakespeare was scandalous when it came out. Well, yeah, yeah. It was going to destroy the minds of all youth, you know, and it was, it, books were horrible because right. of course we didn't have to memorize and do oral things anymore. So, you know, when you read, uh, Plato, he bemoaned the rise of books as this this is going to destroy the education of our youth because they won't have to learn anything. It'll just all be in books now. So, and comic books went through that same phase where comic we had great comic book burnings in America where we would fry these comic books that were helping our young adolescents figure out how to read and, and to love story. So, is that to say that all comic books have redeeming value? I don't know. I mean, that's a judgment call that a parent should make. Um, I always took great joy in knowing that Batman didn't have superpowers. Right. And he still did wonderful things because right. he worked hard and he trained hard and he outsmarted bad guys. And so certain comic book characters are going to have a connection for people that inspires. I knew Batman wasn't real. But I loved what the writers were saying about life through the Batman comic books. And at the same time, I had friends where their parents wouldn't let them have comic books. And uh, and they would just come over to my house and read mine. Right. So 
you know, it, that happens too. So Commodore, you know, you could have been illicitly going to play Oregon Trail at your friend's house. Um, the other, Oregon Trail, the other piece is that was quickly an educational game. Schools bought that game up. It, like and this is back when we were kids, right? Right, right. Gates have an early history in public school settings. I, the first time I played a com, uh, computer game that I really geeked out on was Zork One, and it was that I'd finished all my homework, so my math teacher let me play it on the computer in the back of the room. Um, one of the best things that math teacher could have ever done for the future of my life and career. Wow! I just loved it, and so I would get my homework done as fast as I could or even before class started so I could spend more time on Zork every day. So, and if you don't know what Zork is, if you're listening to this, you should really just look up Zork and, and look at the low-tech gaming right. back in the day. You'll be amused. I, I remember playing a game uh, with my roommates in college called Utopia. And you, mm-hmm. you each had an island and then you would, you would acquire resources by fishing or whatever and so many points. And you have to decide... Kind of like a like a, a early version of Sim City, you know. Do I build a school? Do I build a factory? And then you'd have a hurricane that would come through and wipe things out. And you you mentioned I want to go back, Doctor Dickers, that um, and, and just if you can provide this to me, um, you know, when we're done, the website that parents can go to so they could type in the name of a game that their child has an interest in and, and then there's reviews of that game so they get a better feel for that. And then also maybe any games that, you know, you recommend say, Hey, you know, look, here's some, some games to look into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, well, <laughs> I'm also a Batman fan. The dark Knight is, is my favorite, is my favorite movie. And I, so you talked a lot about how game how games have evolved into um, making choices, ethical choices, ethical decisions, and I imagine for schools and for school counseling curriculums that's very appealing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, I know when when we had um, had an earlier, you know, uh, discourse you indicated that's really a struggle point for schools. Like, do we adopt this or do we not adopt this? Then I guess the other part would be, what if you adopt it and all of a sudden it changes and, and, you know, you're not aware of it. So, um, you know, this is one of those things where you don't want to toss the baby out with the bathwater, but how, how, how do you help schools go about that process of saying, here's a rubric, here's a process. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, David, you're, these are all the questions that I think most of the researchers in this field are spending their time on right now, right? So you're, you're hitting the golden ring. If, if there's a best way out there, that's what a lot of us are trying to figure out. So I can give some thoughts that I think I've seen over, gosh, it's been about eight years of research now. Um, and working with schools, really, there's a few different kind of, uh, if I could just parse it out a little bit. One that idea that the computer games change. Um, I've had that experience myself. I had a group of students where we'd scheduled them to go down to the library and play an hour of World of Warcraft to look at how story gets initiated. Like, how do you get people's attention? Right. First hour of World of Warcraft and, and watch how they get your attention. And I did this with a group of prospective teachers because I'm like, if you really want to know how to get the attention of you know, a, a large percentage of your students, Look at how games grab attention in an hour. So that first day of class, what do you want? What kind of role do you want your students to have? What kind of mission is out in front of them? How do you direct them to their very first activity and task and make it really direct? It's just wonderful design, outstanding design. And it's one of the biggest games on the market. And it has been for 10 years. So we went down to the library and, and all of a sudden, none of them could get in because what I didn't know is well actually i knew it warcraft does updates every tuesday and they change the game every time they do an update they're doing something to modify it fix a bug well the library computers had downloaded the game and didn't allow the automatic downloads so they were all saying there's an update available and you need to get your administrator permission to get this download so it was kind of an abject disaster it's the worst that could happen for a teacher i just lost i just lost a class right so and that's 
inexcusable. In, in education, we don't, we can't afford to just lose a class. So that's a that to me is one of the major roadblocks right now to education. So there's a few solutions out there. One is that a number of schools are starting to sign up with kind of filter services where they can set their firewall to give this permission to make updates to anything that's in that kind of ecology. So there's some interesting things going on out there, but really BrainPop is probably one of the bigger ones where BrainPop kind of houses, you know, hundreds of games that are useful for educators at various levels. And the district would subscribe to BrainPop and then any teacher in the district or any student could play any of these games that are available in that kind of system. Okay. So that's one solution. Another is you just work with your media center person and make sure you've done your updates the morning before you bring the students down. Um, another one is that there are some games where you download a version of the game and you only update when you want to as a teacher, like Minecraft, right? That's one of the things Minecraft has really done a nice job of. Right. That uh, when you put that on your computers and leave it there, you can really never do an update if you don't want to. Now, I don't know what Minecraft is doing or Microsoft is doing to maybe change that now that they've bought the game. But ultimately, if it, that, that would be one of the reasons why Minecraft has been so successful in schools is that you can just download it, get it on your computers. It's not connected to the outside world, so you can set up servers that are limited to just your students. Um, and it's real, and it's easy with a few clicks of a button. So those sorts of things for schools, I think I want some of those things. I don't want to have a game that doesn't work. I'm not a gamer is another kind of common concern for teachers. What if I don't play games and then I don't know how to teach using games? And, and I think there's ways to talk about that and ways to think about it. Um, and then, and then on that idea of what happens when, um, when the game gets dated, we need to do updates and who's going to maintain this and who's going to do that software. And those are tough questions, but they're, they're also questions we need to figure out. And that to me is part of the challenge and the joy of bringing new kinds of media to our schools and our classrooms. We will figure these things out um, because it's too good. There's too many great resources. Why would I buy a pig to do an autopsy when I can do digital pig autopsies that are, that are authentic and don't smell so bad. Right. So those kinds of things are just, they're too easy to make happen and there's too many great resources out there to stop this trend. And it's a good trend because I think safety-wise, one of the largest problems is that when you have a form of media where the kids do it and the parents don't, that's that kind of space where kids are doing things and getting into things that maybe they shouldn't without parental guidance. And you know, in my generation, I, my parents had no idea what I was watching on TV. And I still remember when HBO first got kicking and we subscribed to HBO and, and the parents just got it because they're like, hey, free movies. Um, they didn't figure out that the programming on HT, HBO changed dramatically after 10 o'clock. Right. And as a kid, that's something I figured out real quick. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a video where our kids understand and can navigate it with great literacy. And the adults don't. And that, to me, is kind of one of the greatest safety concerns right now, if you want to frame it in terms of safety doc. Um, I, to me, that's one of the great questions is, how do we parent in a digital age? And how do we do it in a way that's joyful and that, our, and that we're actually bringing that kind of entertainment media into our family? And there's been some good strides on that, too. I look at the Wii and how that's brought families together to play. Yes. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of massive multiplayer online games. Because you've got this space with thousands of people in it, it's almost like giving your kids side-by-side -side tutorial on how to communicate, how to relate to other people, how to get involved in a guild and be a useful member of a community. Um, Tell me a few examples of those. Oh, sure. Uh, so my kids are 19 and 16 now, so they have grown up with these kinds of things. And when they were young, I'll just give you examples from each level. You know, we kind of thought about an hour of gameplay per week per age level. So when they were 10, they could do 10 hours a week and they could figure out where they wanted to play. You could do a binge 10 hours on a Saturday, but you know, we wanted to, we encouraged them to spread it out a little better and, and we gave them some decision-making around that. And then when our kids hit 16, we said, we think we've taught you balance that you should be a reader. You should be watching great um, video, television and movies and you should have you should have kind of a video game. This is part of your diet that goes right alongside learning and entertainment 
going for hikes, going biking with their mom, um, that physical activity should be part of every day, and that life is about finding the balance in those things. And if we don't teach that to our kids, they don't learn balance. Right. And then you have 16-year-olds that, that play for eight hours a night and all day on Saturday. That's not healthy. Um, but I, we have parents that don't get that. So we would basically kind of set up these rules. And we had a one rule was, if you're going to play computer games, you play with us. Like, dad's got to be home, and he's got to feel like computer games, and you have to convince him that this game is worth playing. So, um, it, and I think that made the joy of video games be a bonding thing for, for us when it came as a family between me and my kids, because it was a great way for us to connect. At the same time, I could model things like, I don't feel like computer games tonight. Can we just read together? Like, can we work on the next book we were working on? Yeah. What do you think of just going out and playing Nerf Wars? And we could kind of say there's other fun things to do in life besides computer games. And the kids started to figure out by the age 16, of course, they're like trying to make their own judgment calls about how much to play or how not to and and that sort of thing. And and now that Grant's 19, he, he fasts from computer games once in a while when he realizes they're picking up too much time. He's getting into college, so he's got to try to balance his college work with his computer games. Right. Um, you know, as a, as a higher ed professor, you wouldn't believe how many people get to college and they don't have parents holding them back from games anymore. <laughs> and they have no control. They have never learned to say no to computer games. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a problem across the country that freshmen in college are not, their grades drop through the floor because they just don't have that parenting anymore. It's tragic. Um, you know, another example that we kind of had is, you know, when they were younger, we kind of said, we don't do anything in computer games that we wouldn't do in real life. And when they're younger, where it's harder to separate fantasy from reality, we simply said, if you wouldn't do it in real life, we're not going to do it in a computer game, even if that means losing the game. So this, this became really interesting when the kids were middle school aged and we found a game called Skyrim. And Skyrim is a big open world. You can do anything you want. You don't have to kill anybody or you can go slaughter people. But if you start killing people, the people in the next town over recognize you as a criminal and they try to put you in jail. Oh, goodness. So there's consequences to your actions. And we would have, they would have quests where people were inviting them to do awfully dark things. I mean, this is kind of a grown-up computer game. So we was, as a family, we would just talk and they would be like, I don't want to go take this person out just because somebody has given this quest to me. And then it's like, well, then how do you say no to people? And how do you do that? But that comes with rule number one. If you're going to play, you're playing with us. And then we could talk about these things. Now, as the kids got older, some computer games, you're going to do some of those things. But we waited for the kids to say, Mom and Dad, I, I kind of want to finish this computer game and this story, but I I know I wouldn't kill this person in real life, but this isn't real life. And right. at that point, oh, we can see you're making the cognitive distinction now, and you get it. So go ahead and, you know, you know, and, and make the polar bears go extinct, you know, or, or whatever the thing is that the, the game that you didn't want to do in the game. Or, right. You know, and then we even had long dialogues about is an orc a real person? Which to me is kind of interesting because you would say that leads to some really thick issues for upper elementary kids. Well, just because the person doesn't look like you, in fact, they look a little bit ghastly to you, does that mean they're not, that they don't have rights? Sure. That you have the that you're suddenly able to decide life and death for another group of people that's not you, and at some point the kids are like, Dad, they're just orcs, you know, or can we play a zombie game instead, you know, where we won't get into this, and and so at some point they get sick of me being a dad, and it's like, all right, let's just go and kill some zombies, and we'll have some fun with that. Um, as they got older, we started to see other kinds of things where they would see, especially these massive multiplayer games where a lot of the people in these groups are guilds. So if you want to accomplish the big stuff in these big games, you really need a team of people to do it. And you need a team of people that know what they're doing. So those games can get fairly brutal to an outsider because if you get somebody that immaturely comes into the group and says, I'm ready to go, and they're not, it's really frustrating for people trying to accomplish things. Oh, sure. So they'll push them out of the group. And they'll just say, you're not ready, you're not trained. And sometimes they'll use swear words when they do that. Because it's extremely frustrating. But what's going on there is kind of a filtering process. Where if somebody comes to the group with a different tone, they're not cocky, they're not arrogant, they just say, I'm a learner, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'd love to learn. Which is, by the way, great people skills. 
you'll find that gamer communities are amazingly generous. They just won't bring you on the big guild run. But you'll have people in the guild that are that are, yeah, we'll teach you, we'll train you. Let's go do some little things and get you up to speed and get you ready to go. Almost like getting into a career, right? Is that you find kind of a mentor person that shows you the ropes, right? Help you get involved, you learn the discourse, you learn the vocabulary, you learn how the team operates. And you make small contributions, and people elevate you to larger and larger roles as you're as you show up on time. And you know, the kids one one time couldn't make it to a guild event, and they felt horrible because they had no way to contact the guildies. They didn't want to just be a no show. And I I felt really encouraged as a parent because these are people that feel a social obligation to another group of people. Yes, in such a way that. If I'm going to miss my appointment with you, I should call you. I should text you. I should let you know. So we actually stopped in at a place where they could open their laptops, get online quick and say, I'm not getting home on time. We're busy. I'm super sorry. I have to miss the raid tonight. And to me, that's teaching kids at a very young age how to be accountable to a group, how to check in with people and communicate. And um, the fact that that all happens in a computer game space to me is really interesting. Um, most of the time what I've seen kind of bullying or meanness in digital spaces, it's usually someone that is not very well accepted in that game space because they're not working with other people. And so there's a frustration for it. Luckily, almost every game has what you call an ignore function. So we had to train our kids in on that. Hey, this is somebody that's being way inappropriate in the trade chat. And here's what we do with those people. And we type in their name and then we hit ignore and you will never hear from them again in that game. Wow. The more and more rude and annoying people get in computer games, the less platform they have because more and more people will ignore them. And that's frustrating when you're immature and you don't know what to do with that. But ultimately they have to go in, change their name, create a new character and start over and try again with their people skills. Um, So there's that. For a lot of parents, if you don't want your kid in a space with 2,000 other people that you don't know, there's also that fear and safety. We, we spent, we were really specific with kids. In fact, my, my wife and daughter were looking up jobs the other day, and someone was looking for a nanny, and they put the picture of their kids on the nanny post. Wow. And my daughter, she's 16, goes, who does that? Why would you put a child's photo on the internet like that, just showing the world who your kids are? And so safety for me was something we really ingrained at a young age with our kids, which was, you don't, you can use an avatar name. People don't need to know your real name. They don't need to know where you live. Right. And if they're asking, you need to tell mom and dad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. See that if someone's asking you where you live, Um, you know, things like email scams we learn through computer games. If somebody sends you something where you need to, press a button to download something, you should delete that email. Right. Um, and, you know, and that came right out of, you know, massive multiplayer online games where the company says, we will never ask you for your password. We will never ask you to download something because our downloads and updates are automated when you have, when you put up your game. Sure. So being able to have digital literacy, avoid those kinds of, you know, things where people have identity theft. Right. Um, it, it's really simple to avoid identity theft. Don't put your identity out in digital spaces. So so you're talking about digital liter- literacy. Now, is this something that's being actively instructed in schools right now? Because, Dr. Dickers, I, I don't see it a lot when I go and, and work with schools. Um, what you're talking about would be wonderful. I have a daughter who is addicted to Minecraft and, and develops incredible... Um, creations, and then we'll take a notebook and we'll write down every step that goes with it, and and just fascinating. And and I'm so impressed because she'll sit down next to me and say, "Here's this level, here's this level, here's this level," and I kind of got a kick out of it because she said, "You know, I'd like to design a Walmart," and then I just <laughs> just for just to do it, I'd like to to build, you know, where the different things are, and I'm thinking to myself. From the the educator perspective of that, well, hey, if you actually built like a digital Walmart and you had students with disabilities who are going out shopping, you could go in this Walmart, take kind of the areas where you you need to go to, you know, what would be our best way around this Walmart to make our 
shopping efficient and, yeah. and some of those things and, and but tell me tell me what you see as far as schools who's taking the lead on this because i think what you said is true the right. teachers not as comfortable as the student in in a lot of these or in at least some of these situations so who takes the lead in this very important this is where the future is yeah you know, I, I, a lot of my research, I talk to teachers that do know more than the students. And they're really kind of being those innovators, those icebreaker people. There's a great book that just came out from Carol Williams called Teacher Pioneers. And so there's a number of people like Carol and myself that are really looking at Dr. Carol Williams, I should say. Sorry, Carol. Um, that, that, that are really looking at kind of these maverick teachers that are kind of leading the way on this. Um, so, you know, to me, those teachers are interesting because they're figuring this out. And I, so to answer your question, we could do a lot better in K-12 schools and even in higher ed, being leaders in this area and, and, uh, and educating kids in digital literacy. It's, it's the, the gamer kids that have a lot higher digital literacy than the ones that don't. So it is a have or have nots kind of world. And when you have college age students that say, I'm not a tech person in an era where technology is ubiquitous, to me, that's a major issue of parenting and teaching at the K-12 level. But we can't have that anymore. No matter what profession you're in, there's digital tools that will help you do that profession that are more than, than likely essential to getting a job in that profession. So you really, you know, there's no way to kind of not do this anymore. So some schools are doing a great job. I love Oregon, Wisconsin. Had a principal, I don't know if he's still there or not, John Tanner in Oregon, Wisconsin, started doing teacher workshops where the teacher, the only condition of the workshop is you had to develop a unit for your class. So you'd take a class with John Tanner. He was the assistant principal there. And you'd come in, you know, once a month, once a week, whatever it was. And at the end of the class, you could get whatever technology you want for your classroom. So instead of buying a smart board for every classroom, Oregon schools said, we're not going to do that anymore. It's, it's, we're not going to just keep dumping technology into classrooms. Or LA Unified School District, because I know you have some LA sponsors, bought iPads for all their students. Massive investment without teacher training as part of the budget. So right. you have a lot of kids with iPads and teachers that don't know what to do with them. Um, that's not necessarily effective. And I hope LA kind of did some things with teacher professional development, but at last reading what I had and, and looking at their original proposal and the news stories, they didn't really have that as part of the plan. So the assumption that just dumping this technology in the classrooms is going to suddenly make digitally literate students without digitally literate teachers to guide them, it's, it's, it's foolhardy. So... I like what Oregon did because they said, you can have whatever technology you want as a teacher, but you've got to show us how you're going to use it in one of your units. Um, but otherwise, just stay traditional if you want to. We're not going to spend money on that anymore. Yeah. Uh, the end result is teachers got wanted new technology, so they would figure out new units. So they had successfully created a system that I, I think, it, you know, at the time when I left Wisconsin, I felt like Oregon was ahead of, the, ahead of everybody else on how to do technology in schools. But I'll make sure that I link uh, link out Oregon schools in the narrative for for this production. So, so what is your favorite multiplayer game? You know, if if a school brought you in to to give a presentation, which I know happens a lot, Doctor Dickers, and they said, "Tell us one game like that we could that we could just start with." And I think I say one game because. There's also part of this is convincing parents that um, gaming is, is a worthy academic venture that, oh, right. you're just putting, you know, we's in the classroom or it's the same stuff we have at home. I want the kids to learn X, Y, Z and you're not doing that. So so maybe give me like what, you know, one game is that could could be used as, you know, we're going to demonstrate this to parents at an open house and something like that. Here's the thing. Gaming is media. So for me to say, here's a great game for education is like for me to say, here's a great piece of paper for education. The paper by itself doesn't do anything. There has to be a lesson that goes with it that the teacher is using to teach. So I can take almost any computer game and use it for learning 
or kids can just go play it at home and and ha really have nothing connected to the standards we need to teach in the classroom. Sure. That said, the most paper-like computer game out there where it's just a blank slate, do whatever you want with it, here's the crayons, go, is Minecraft. And Minecraft isn't even, they don't even have structure. There's not even a plot line, really. Kids will make plot lines and do thousands of YouTube stories using Minecraft, but Minecraft is the design, it's the space. All it is, is a digital world with a bunch of digital blocks with different colors that kids can pick up and stack how they want. It's Legos. But Legos, you know, they, they tried to make their version and it's not as good. Um, but Minecraft is really it right now. And, and when it comes to that multiplayer game, the other thing is it's not open multiplayer. It's limited multiplayer. So you and I have to be in the same server because we have given each other the code. Right. So you don't get strangers walking into those spaces. That's essential for privacy. And at schools, privacy is a big deal. So with FERPA law, you can't just have strangers coming into your school talking with your students. Nor can you have students in massive multiplayer spaces where strangers can talk to them. Um, no, there are schools that use those games, and they've figured out how to do it, and they have parent permission slips, and they use avatars, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Minecraft really opens that door. I've seen teachers that have used Minecraft in every subject area. So when parents see their students building things that are connected to curriculum, it's not like we have to convince them that this was valuable. Right. It, it, you just said something, too. You know, students then creating a YouTube video based upon something they've created in Minecraft, either instructional or that's an extension of that. Well, that starts to address uh, literacy, uh, video literacy, competency, which now, you know, there's an exam for that, for example, in Wisconsin, where I'm at, and, and I'm sure in other states. So you're right. You can branch that off into so many things. And plus, as I indicated, my daughter, which isn't unique because these things are all over. When we go to book fairs, what does she do? She right away goes to the Minecraft section and, and we'll see if there's any books that she doesn't own where you open it up and, it, and it's just ideas of, of what other right. kids have put together or adults on things. Here's, here's, here's something you might want to build and here's what you're going to need to build it. That's exactly where she gravitates toward. And, and as a father, it's been fun because she brings me into that discussion and will sit down next to me. And then she'll also say, Dad, what do you think you would like to see added to this? And, and just going back a, a little bit to, and, and this I never told my daughter, so until she watches this video, she'll be like, Dad, I can't believe you did that. But uh, I, you know, I, I was a Madden football fanatic back in my days in my college, my college roommates. And, <laughs> We would play an entire, you know, season, and and we would we would document it every time, every quarter, every halftime. We would we would document all of the statistics for the game, and then we would put them up on our wall in our apartment. And it got to the point where one entire wall was covered with a season's worth of statistics, and right. uh, and we got to the final the final game. And, uh, you know, one of our other friends announced it and set up the camcorder. And back then, the camcorder was the equivalent of, you know, what you'd, what you'd see, um, you know, used, used in a, a, a film today in Hollywood. I mean, the, the thing that you had to put on, put on a tripod that could hold 300 pounds. I mean, this just monster thing. But, yeah, he, he, you know, we recorded it. He announced it. We did a pregame and all of that stuff. And then all of the statistics went up. Um, but I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget just how how much you know we got into that. But we got in, we got into the game, but we got into the stats. Like I knew, like you know, I'm going against Craig this week, and Craig averages 229.3 yards passing. So I'm going to have to get my my corners and, and adjust them a little bit. Or you know, I I, I knew you, and then I, you know the playbooks, and we would write out our own plays and our strategy that I. I and one of my roommates actually took my playbook one night while I was sleeping and I had a big game the next day with him. And, and yes, I had to play it from memory without my playbook. I think I lost. I think, I, I think he beat me. Um, but, but it was, it was a wonderful time, but it wasn't just this pure 
entertainment factor. I mean, we were really into into the numbers, into the the strategy. And and you're right too. Like there would be certain times, you know, I'd be, you know, do you want to play a game? It's like, nope, we gotta study. You know, you have to make those those choices. Um but you know that that was that was the old days. I actually still have <laughs> I have that system in a milk crate <laughs> with all of the cartridges. You know, it probably is is you know it's museum worthy at this point. But uh, <laughs> you know, though, I just heard an interdisciplinary unit where you were doing public speaking, you were doing math, and nobody had to convince you that it was fun. And you're doing that, you know the Playing the actual game was part of it, but you built this whole system around the game. And it's the humans that make that kind of environment interesting, right? So I would never suggest that all high schoolers in America should play Madden football. But I can't imagine a world where that wasn't good for you. Like it didn't help you develop that community and, and, and pride in what you did. Being able to geek out on something isn't too far of a cry from running your own podcast. You know, so just that idea of diving deep into something and, and having that deep learning experience and how fun that is. Boy, that's a beautiful discussion. Not to be too academic with your story, but I mean, that's not uncommon. We see that, you know, a lot of college students have tournaments and, and are doing that sort of thing. And they're doing it because it's fun, not because it's learning or because they have to. But they're still learning when they do it. And that's kind of interesting to me. Uh, Rich Halverson did some work where he looked at fantasy football. Okay. And, you know, where they're just having fun with data. That's what you're doing. And back in the day, we used to cut newspaper clippings right, out. Right, and yep. And it's like, what kind of people sit around and look at box scores? And why is that even fun? And it's because I want to beat my cousin Martin. Right. And dang it, he's been beating me for three years. And I just want to pick the right players to get there. So I got to know the stats, which means I need to have a feel for those numbers week to week. We were getting to the point where we were looking at weather reports. Yeah, I did this. <laughs> I to predict if the receivers were going to have a good turn. It was just nuts. And Rich Alverson's work was looking at, well, what would it look like if we took this robust data set right. principals have for schools? Right. They could start playing with data, not playing with kids, but understanding their data because they had such a passionate need to dig in deep. So how do fantasy football websites organize data to make it interesting and, and engaging? Right. And he started to develop principal websites that were interesting and engaging because they were well-designed. Oh, wow. He's, he's still playing with those things. But, you know, usually when principals get their data, it's this two-inch thick three-ring binder of like... Absolutely. Really, you want me to dig through that? And so... Even things as, as essential as knowing how your students are doing in your school, games have some solutions that we could learn something from. And that's Rich's, Rich Halverson's brilliance, is that he's seeing those kinds of connections where we can figure these things out to make it more interesting. So there's a great TED Talk on a, an electric company that started just showing you your neighbor's scores. Okay. How, how effective that was at getting people to compete to lower their energy bills. Really? You should look it up and put the link out there, but it's an outstanding, you know, how to get people to, to spend, use less energy by having them compete with the Joneses a little bit. Wow. I know my neighbor has two, two uh, furnaces, so I think I've got him beat because I've only got one. You'll be able to rub that in his face. Right. Pulling one next to each other. So, well, I'm going to wrap things up, uh, Dr. Dickers, and I, I, this has been uh, a very fun discussion for me. But well, David, thank you so much for having me. It's it's been a, it's been fun to talk about it. It has, and uh, and I think what you're doing and, and giving people like me a chance to have this conversation, and you're doing all the work of putting it together and getting it out there. So I appreciate your invitation and being on your show. It's very kind of you. I appreciate that, and uh, I will put your contact information. So others uh, will have that and the things that we've talked about today. So thank you very much, Dr. Dickers. Thank you.